0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books in Japanese Studies a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Uh, I'm Rodicia, your host for this episode, and today we are joined by Dr. Susan Napier to discuss her most recent book, Miyazaki World, Alive in Art. Uh, Dr. Napier is a Goldweight Professor of Rhetoric and Japanese at Tufts University. Before um, we get into the book, perhaps we can start with a little self-introduction for our listeners who may not be familiar with you um, and your work.
0: Sure, um, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, yes, I actually am a professor, of, a regional professor of Japanese literature, and I got into Japanese literature from reading haiku. As a, a young girl in Cambridge, Massachusetts, there was a haiku boom, and I loved that uh, the kind of combination of poetry and imagery. Uh, so I went into literature in college and graduate school, and then uh, as I kind of grew and matured and times changed, I became aware of this new phenomenon, which is Japanese animation or anime, and I was actually teaching in London at the time uh, when uh, the very famous uh, anime movie Akira came out. In fact, it was the European premiere was in London, and I went to see it, and I realized that it and yes, and I realized that Akira was a whole new deal. I the the animation was spectacular. The story was dark and violent and kind of mind-blowing. And you know, if you're used to American animation, which at that point was still very cute and bright and, and fun, uh, this was a whole new ballgame. And so I thought, well, someone should write a book about this. And nobody did. So eventually I thought, oh, well, I might as well. And those were in the days when you didn't have you know, any streaming services. You were relying on you know other fans to help you get uh, videos and, um, and uh, sort of find out what, what's the latest thing going on is. And, but it was still rather exciting. And so I ended up writing a book called um, Anime, um, a cultural investigation. And I really worked to try and, and do as many interesting and important anime as I could find. Uh, and as I was finishing up the work, I realized that I was more and more drawn to the, um, the movies of Studio Ghibli, in particular the movies of Miyazaki Hayao. So as I was thinking about my, what my next project should be, and this is now, gosh, 10 years ago, I thought, you know, maybe it's time for someone to write a book on Miyazaki. There, there had been one that was written in the late 90s, which was very good, but so much had changed since then. So I thought, well, yes, I will start working on Miyazaki. And it was very, very interesting and um, kind of uh, in, immersive because he is such an immersive director. So I got into the films very deeply. I also got to meet, uh, I already met him a couple of times, but I got to do an interview with him and I met some of the people who'd worked with him and talked to them and just generally kind of got into the whole, what I call the world of Miyazaki. And so that's my most recent book. And uh, yeah, it's a culmination of, of many years of kind of research in Japanese culture and animation.
1: Great. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, De- definitely. I think all of us who are doing uh, research on, on sort of anime can, can attest to just how impactful sort of that first um, book of yours. Um, Thank you. Yeah. And, and well, this this book is uh, a fascinating exploration of, of not only um, Miyazaki's poems, but also the director himself. Um, but before we sort of start discussing the book itself... Can you perhaps uh, share a little more about how this project came to be? Um, you know, what inspired you to sort of dedicate years of your life to writing about Miyazaki?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I really—I mean, the thing that first interested me about him that was really stood out—and this is why I talk about my anime book—is his use of strong female characters. I mean, this was his first, um, his second major film, but the one that kind of helped found Studio Ghibli was a film called uh, Naushika, The Valley of the Wind. And that was actually the second anime I saw after Akira. And I remember coming away thinking, as with Akira, I was seeing something really different, sort of never before kind of stuff, which included a very interesting, complex, uh, but highly sympathetic and impressive young female hero. And that was, remember, this is, I guess I was seeing this in the late, early 90s, maybe by the time I saw it, it came come out in 1984 in Japan. And I realized that this was a kind of new direction, not just for, for anime, but generally in films at that time. Hollywood films did not feature many strong, interesting women characters at that point. They were still very, very rare. And this Naushka in particular is very uh, intriguing because she's a, she's a scientist, she's a swordswoman, she can fly her own little aircraft, and she's also a really amazing and charismatic leader. And she is the movie is set in the 30th century after something called the Ceramic Wars have devastated the world. It's a post-apocalyptic kind of sci-fi fantasy. And she is someone who who really is trying to kind of deal with the world, to engage with the world, not to go backwards, or not to revive, you know, the the kind of excesses of, of toxic industrial civilization but to learn to work and deal with a whole new world, which includes a much stronger uh, role for uh, these very large insects who are known as omu, and for something called in, J- in Japanese called the fukai. Uh, it's re- called in English sometimes a toxic jungle, this sort of toxic large forest that has kind of taken over most of the planet. And she's dealing with, with all these things, plus a war between the, the remaining human factions who haven't figured out that it might be a good idea for, for everyone to kind of get together and try to live in harmony. And she's trying to stop a war. She's also trying to figure out how to, how to save uh, what's re- left of the planet in terms of, of clean air and water. And uh, it's just a very, very interesting work of art. And I, I was really quite amazed by it. I, I also read the accompanying manga, uh, which Miyazaki wrote. He started it in 1982. The movie came out in 1984. The movie is based on the first um, first manga and a half, basically first two manga, uh, first two um, uh, ish, uh, volumes that he wrote. But he ended up writing six volumes and finishing in 1994, 12 years later. And the manga is also extremely interesting. It's much darker than the film, and even more complex. But it it really again shows this young woman as a very intriguing character, and to see a, frankly a male director and a male manga and also male manga artist to, to really create such a, a three-dimensional, full-fledged, intriguing female character was was just really interesting. And I, I say in the book, and I believe this is true, that um, I think of Nausicaa as in a way the alter ego of Miyazaki. And because in many ways they, they share certain traits. Uh, they're both very passionate people they are prone to anger and sometimes to despair. At the same time, they have a kind of uh, deep, kind of radiant hope to to help and change the world, to help humanity, uh, to help the world itself—not just humanity. I want to really stress that this is a. Uh, these are people who are very strongly aware of the interconnection between humanity and the rest of the natural world, and they're also, as I said, they're passionate and, in a way, they're both romantics. Uh, they both. Uh, want to believe in a better world, and they and their their sort of journey, and Mashika's journey in the manga, and Miyazaki's journey, in his own life, are are very interesting to see. And over the years, I realized with the manga that it does get darker as Miyazaki's own vision becomes more mature, uh, more complex. Uh, in some ways, angrier. In some ways, uh, uh, kind of really battling between despair and hope. And I thought this is a really fascinating man. I mean, very—he's well read. He's—he's—he um, studied politics and economics at university, uh, and he's also just an extraordinary artist. And the other thing about *Nashika* that was so—that really blew me away at the time was simply how stunningly beautiful the movie is. The images are just incredible. The palette is wonderful. It, again, it kind of, as I said, it's a—it's an immersive experience. And so you have this incredibly talented artist who is just uh, just really extraordinary images that are, are very that are original and beautiful and unique uh, and also a great storyteller someone who creates a, a fascinating uh, narrative of adventure and love and loss and and again kind of uh, hope for the future uh, and then finally these really interesting well uh, well-rounded and and intriguing characters so I really wanted to find out more about this man and why how he had become the artist he has become. Yeah, fascinating. Thank you.
1: Um, I, I definitely want to spend um, more time talking about Nashka and, and sort of you know uh, the, the other female protagonists that you can sort of see in his movies, but um, maybe we can sort of start um, by talking about you know the, the title of the book um, Miyazaki World. You know, uh, other animation directors. You know, you've got Takata Isao. You know, Hosoda Mamoru. You know, recently, the the popular sort of Shinkai Makoto, they've all crafted different worlds through through sort of their films. Can you talk a little bit more about what Miyazaki world is and sort of what distinguishes it from the works of, of you know, these other directors, for example?
0: Sure. Uh, I should mention that my original title had been The Last Utopian because, again, to go with this theme of romance yeah. and passion, I do believe that Miyazaki really wants to create utopia or to, to spur people on to create utopia and to sort of get back to your, your larger question about how that makes him different. I think he is someone who is very. Um, uh, shall I put it? I mean, if I say politically motivated, that sounds a little bit kind of limiting. But he is someone who who clearly has an agenda, I guess. And that's more so. I mean, that that's sort of unfair because the other people you're mentioning are all brilliant directors. I mean, Hosoda is uh, also has uh, definitely uh, moments when he's really trying to um, uh, kind of give you uh, his audiences a vision of a of a world that, that could be a better world. In summer wars, you have this sense of the family and community uh, and kind of a willingness to kind of deal with, with technology. And in um, wolf children, you have a, a really interesting kind of vision of, of children of outsiders uh, trying to make their way in, in Japan. And remember, Japan is a highly conformist society. So Hosoda, too, absolutely, is someone who um, cares about about not just doing entertaining things, but, but creating things that... that you know, make you um, make you see the world in a different way. I think um, Makoto Shinkai's work is also has uh, definitely um, sort of visions of, of possibilities there. Of again, I think they're they're all interested. In, I'm just thinking about this now, kind of into connecting uh, these sort of different kinds of, of ways that we connect with the world uh, and also connecting with history. Again, with Hosoda's summer wars and uh, Shinkai's. Um, film, uh, Your Name, you have a very strong sense of the Japanese past, and that's important to these people. They Again, they're using the magic of animation to create that. Uh, another great um, uh, director, whom I think you mentioned, is Oshimamoru, and he's another one of my, my great uh, heroes. I mean, he's brilliant. He's less into kind of cuddly, feel-good stories, but mm-hmm. again, he has a sense of connection with human technological animal. Uh, so in some ways, I guess what I'm saying is there they're not necessarily completely different from Miyazaki world. What we have with Miyazaki, uh, however, is a very strong uh, kind of development over heavens. I mean, he started in well, he's actually been been uh, working since the 1960s. So we're now talking uh, heavens. Um, yeah, sixty. Yeah, at least uh, just about sixty years mm-hmm. of output. And so we can trace that in a way that it's it's harder, at least at this point, harder to do with the younger directors. And you can see certain aspects of his work that make him, that have a definite Miyazaki stamp. It's why I say in the book that we can definitely call him an auteur, someone whose signature essentially has certain signature uh, themes, uh, characters, um, uh, narratives. That, that vary, but, but still have a definite um, uh, sort of, one, one can link them back to the creator himself very, very clearly. And you see that even um, in his uh, very early work, uh, he's um, uh, very good with action sequences. And so that's that's a real sort of pleasure of his work. So just his animation is, is exceptional as probably a lot of people listening to this know. He does hand-drawn, uh, his, really most of his work including the movie he's currently working on uh, are from his own storyboards and they are beautifully done images and um, that create a very special kind of look that is very much, I think, uh, really clear movie to movie that they are all um, kind of, there's a a definite sort of look. It it includes uh, extraordinary scenes of nature, just, I mean, ravishing scenes (laughs) uh, at least as as early as, Nausicaa and even more prominently we we continue in with um, My Neighbor Totoro which is one of his other really incredible films uh, where you have a real feeling of kind of entering the natural world or another world uh, in a way that is is highly believable at the same time as it has a kind of magical entrancement to it that I think is, is really specific to Miyazaki. I think his his imagery, you, you can see if you look at his storyboards or his original drawings, uh, how beautifully rendered uh, this, um, his backgrounds are. Backgrounds are very important in, in Ghibli's um, work. You see how beautiful the landscape is. You have a sense of kind of a lusciousness, of um, a, almost a voluptuousness of the landscape that you, you can be part of. And that you see that uh, even in his most recent film, The Wind Rises, which is more set in Tokyo, a good deal of it is set in, in Tokyo in the 1930s uh, and in a, the factory. Uh, but you have these backgrounds that, as they are kind of lusciously rendered, of uh, pre war Japan. Of, of, um, at one point, the the, um, the protagonist and his sister go across a canal at sunset, and it's just stunningly beautiful. I think that's, that's one of the things that I particularly see in Miyazaki. Again, the other, uh, um, other directors do care about interconnection and they have great narrative, but, but Miyazaki has a special touch uh, that I think is, is um, partly because of a lot of his extraordinary imagery. And also I might add one more thing, and that's um, again, a little bit different from, from most directors is he's also very much uh, inspired by uh, children's literature in particular, uh, English children's literature, especially, uh, but also um, uh, a very famous uh, and beloved uh, Japanese um, writer named Miyazawa Kenji, who wrote extraordinary fantasy uh, stories, and uh, also very much sort of based on the Japanese landscape. And um, I think Miyazaki's knowledge of literature and his wide reading, I mean he will he will recommend that you read The Hobbit or The Secret Garden. These are both English um, literature works. And I think he that that allows him his his knowledge of literature, and maybe this goes back to my own uh, sort of initial interest in literature, it helps creates it helps him create really deep characters because he's he's making characters who are not just obviously you know the adventurer type or the you know the the feisty female type. He's he's making really realistic characters who are uh, who come out of I mean who could do very well in in a story of. Uh, and almost a 19th century novel or early 20th century novel. These are characters who come across uh, very, very strongly and intensely as people you'd like to know. And I think that, that's one thing that helps us keep going as we watch his movies, that uh, the beauty of the, the imagery, the beauty of the landscape, and the, these very, very uh, kind of interesting, sympathetic, uh, very highly uh, three-dimensional, multi-layered characters.
1: Indeed, indeed, yeah. Um, I remember w- watching um my neighbor Totoro, which which was sort of my entry into his films, and just was stunned, you know, with, with sort of you know this 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 very complete and yet realistic, you know, world that he's sort of crafted through that movie. Yeah, fascinating. Um. Okay, so so the book opens with a uh sort of section uh, titled Hametsu, right? Sort of in and in, in out of the many themes that we can find in Miyazaki's movies. I find it interesting you sort of choose to, to start with, with this particular word. Um, how can we understand, um, you know, Hametsu, like destruction in Miyazaki world? Uh, how is that sort of depicted in his films?
0: Uh, wow, good question. Yes, it's interesting that I kind of avoided that as one of the major themes of Miyazaki. I think because maybe after two years of COVID, you know, it's something that is it's hard to, to keep dwelling on. But absolutely, Miyazaki is since uh, really... Uh, at least as early as his television series, uh, Feature Boy Conan*, back in the um, uh, late '70s, he has been dealing with uh, end of the world visions, uh, apocalyptic visions, and I think this is is incredibly important. As I say in my book, uh, this is not just uh, unique to Miyazaki. Many Japanese are highly have a sense of a uh, very highly developed sense of the possibility of world ending scenarios. It goes back uh, simply even to the archipelago that they live on, which is part of the Pacific ring of fire, which means that you have these tectonic plates shifting underneath you all the time, which causes earthquakes and volcanoes and tsunami. So from early on, the Japanese have been aware of the kind of vulnerability of their specific world to, to terrible uh, kind of world-ending events, but in Miyazaki's case, also, I wanted to um, particularly zero in on the the shadow of the war, of World War II. And it it always interests me that back when I was a freshman in college, or um, at least an undergraduate, my Japanese literature professor came out and said, uh, the shadow of World War II is still a very important, lingers very importantly in Japanese literature. And I remember, you know, writing it down in my notebook, Shadow of World War II. And thinking, yeah, but that that'll change, you know. It's, it's so long ago, and of course, it still is there. It's so many ways. Um, this was a enormously impactful event in in Japanese history. Uh, the build up to the war, the militarization, the um, uh, kind of concentration of uh, sort of a kind of vision of, of Japan as this sort of world, uh, or at least a the kind of resistor to, to the West, the uh, leader of Southeast Asian and other Asian nations, whether they wanted to be led by Japan or not. And then this terrible legacy of uh, occupation and colonialism and destruction by the part of the Japanese as they went first into China and then into Southeast Asia. They'd already taken over Korea and Taiwan. And this this very severe legacy of, uh, of kind of brutality against uh, their fellow Asians, and then of course, they uh, finally, when everything comes home to roost, and that's where the Hamets are also Harets, another word which means you know, kind of destruction. apart uh, part comes in because Japan in 1941, when Miyazaki was born, was riding high. I mean, it had just bombed Pearl Harbor very successfully. It was uh, it had the Mitsubishi Zero, this incredible uh, planes that could be outmaneuver anything that America or Europe had. It seemed to be really kind of on a roll. And then uh, by the time 1945 rolls around, the place uh, that Japan is completely devastated in a way that, that, for Americans at least, is very hard to imagine. I think European listeners got to understand better, but uh, this, this sense of, of uh, this hope or, or kind of um, uh, false dream of Japan as a major power kind of uh, you know, taking over a good part of the world and then to be kind of pushed back, literally pushed back, pushed out of its colonies, uh, sent back to the, its, its uh, original archipelago. And then the destructive, the terrible, terrible destructive fire bombings that occurred for a year uh, in the last year of the war, that was just uh, relentless. In half, uh, um, most of, of Japanese cities, almost all of Japanese major cities had been uh, fire bombed, uh, including of course, Tokyo, and also um, uh, Miyazaki's partner, uh, directing partner's uh, uh, home in um, Okayama, uh, and so you have just you're growing up with a a world in which everything has changed, everything has broken. You you see literally you see corpses uh, in the rivers, uh, trying people trying to run away from the fire bombings. You see debris and rubble everywhere. I mean, this and things had been so, so it seemed so great for a while. So this was a physical devastation, and also an emotional devastation that was just huge. Uh, and of course, the final moments of devastation are the atomic bombings of um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which were, of course, all around the world. Uh, this was it was a sense of a new a world-threatening weapon that had been developed and was being used on civilians uh, in large cities. And uh, the fact is that, to this point, Japan is the only country in the world that has experienced nuclear bombing. And there is still a a shared collective uh, awareness of this. And again, a shared uh, collective awareness of vulnerability and the possibility of, of devastating change and I think one other thing I might mention, because I think I bring it, uh, bring it er, bring it up early on in the book, is this um, very old Japanese traditional sense of something called mono no aware, which literally means the sadness of things or the the ness of things, and it's a sense of time of things passing, and that of uh, sense of impermanence that we can't hold on to anything, that that we have to appreciate the beauty around us because it will fade. I mean, as just as as spring turns to summer, turns to autumn and the leaves fall and the, the snows come, this is a, a world of, of constant transience and uh, ultimately of both life and death that, that kind of coexist in this endless cycle. And I think both uh, Miyazaki and his partner, director partner Takahata, are highly aware of that. And perhaps that's one reason why uh, there is such a sense of both beauty and destruction in his work. He doesn't, doesn't shy away from showing the, the beautiful aspects of the world. But he also, if you see uh, his movies, there's often a hint of, maybe more than a hint of melancholy and of loss. Loss of cultures, loss of civilization, the uh, potential for uh, inevitable potential for death. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night.
1: Thank you. Very, very interesting. Um, and you, you can tell from sort of you know the the wind rises right. That I believe was was released only a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, an entire film sort of dedicated to the exploration of, of sort of this this time period and sort of um, the complicated relationship relationship they sort of um, shares with with sort of um, World War Two.
0: Um,
1: exactly, okay. and also
0: yeah. in the film early on in the film we have an earthquake too. It's a marvelous sequence, beautifully animated. Uh, but you had the feeling that you're kind of riding along in this train with the characters, all of a sudden the earth starts to kind of of overturn itself right underneath you, right as you're looking at it. So this deep-seated sense of vulnerability uh, to natural forces and then to the uh, terrible weaponry and technology that human beings have produced. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, Okay, Uh, now I uh, also want to talk about the the various sort of female protagonists that can be seen, um, you know, featured in many of his movies. Um, in the book, you, you mentioned that Miyazaki's relationship with his mother, for example, is sort of an influence in the depiction of female characters in his work. And there's, there's plenty of just there's so, there's so many different um, characters. You know, you've got Nos- Noska, um, and you've got so, so many editors. What role do they play in sort of Miyazaki world and what are some of the underlying issues that we can um, see in sort of their depictions? Wow. Uh,
0: first of all, the female characters are just omnipresent in Miyazaki world, really, again, from uh, quite early on, um, again, Future Boy Conan has a very interesting, this is a 1978 television series, post-apocalyptic uh, series that Miyazaki, the only television series that Miyazaki ever did, and it features a, a young woman, a girl named Lana, who has kind of telepathic sensibilities, and is very much a kind of companion to uh, Conan, the, uh, the, the titular uh, protagonists of the series, and uh, but he really develops that even more. As I said, with Nausicaa six years later, where we have a character who's not just she. Um, Nausicaa does have telepathic characters, and um, but she also has all these other things: her ability to fight, her ability to her scientific intelligence, her curiosity, and her char- charisma. But I think what is very interesting in the female characters, first of all, is that they are often connected with nature to make a very sort of um, kind of simplistic, but I think somewhat useful um, kind of idea is that w- the women characters j- by and large in Miyazaki's works are more connected with uh, sort of more magical, uh, supernatural talents and, tech- and, um, uh, and elements such as um, in, um, uh, uh, for example, the, uh, his very early and wonderful movie, um, Castle in the Sky Laputa, you have a young boy, Pazu who is a, who's, who's a miner and he, um, he, he loves planes and he's really kind of creating his own little plane. And then he uh, starts to uh, consort with this young woman uh, named Shita, who is also a very interesting character. But she has this special connection with through a pendant with a kind of supernatural powers and with a kind of larger, older tradition of another world. Uh, so that's um, one thing that is, is an aspect of, of Miyazaki's work and, and his female characters. This uh, kind of uh, slight more linked to the mystical and uh, supernatural, as whereas the men tend to be more more technological. Oh, that's not always the case because you have Porco Rosso, which is a very interesting movie uh, about a man who a former World War One pilot who had um, been uh, uh, was so disgusted by the excesses and the horror of World War One, that he kind of has it kind of creates a spell that turns him into a pig. And, but he's still a great, great pilot. And he has these adventures, which include two very strong female characters. One of whom is more traditionally female. She's a, uh, a singer and an owner of a hotel, but she is the, also the owner and the manager of the hotel. She's tough and, and has uh, uh, connections with um, groups of, Around sort of political groups. This is the movie is set in uh, the late 1920s, and uh, she has a lot of um, uh, a lot of force and and character too. But he also has a young woman whom he who helps him fix his plane, uh, Theo. And Theo is very definitely very very believable, inquisitive, assertive, enthusiastic young girl who also is really brilliant at uh, fixing planes. So Miyazaki goes out of his way. I've just said that they are often more mystical but he also goes out of his way to include female characters who are tough and um, and quite adept at, at all kinds of things in the in the work world. Um, I might also mention something that I, I really appreciate about Miyazaki's women characters. He's, he doesn't just stick to young women or even beautiful young women. He does include older figures. I'm thinking particularly, uh, the most obvious one is Lady Eboshi, who is, a again, a strong leader in Princess Mononoke. She is head of a a town that does iron smelting. And she is initially seen as this almost potentially kind of evil person because she seems to be uh, wanting to destroy the forest. Um, And she does want to destroy the forest, but she's trying to to destroy the forest in order to keep her town surviving with their iron smelting. And she gives jobs and really a livelihood to uh, sort of marginal figures. So she's, again, a complex interesting character that you can't just read as a simple, obvious villain. And she's very much in charge. She's a very strong leader. And she's capable, at the end, of, of some compromise and reflection, which, again, is, is very important. Um, I would also say um, he has even older women characters who are wonderfully delineated, including, um, uh, mentioned, uh, Castle in the Sky Laputa, the um, Shita and Pazu, the protagonists of the movie, run into a gang of, of Um, sky pirates, uh, air pirates. And they are led by an older woman uh, known as Ma Adola. And she is a tough, tough woman, and very generally considered to be based on Miyazaki's own mother, who uh, suffered from tuberculosis. All the time Miyazaki was growing up, his mother was very sick. Uh, She had to kind of lie on a special bed, or she'd be in the Uh, in a sanatorium somewhere because tuberculosis was a a terrible disease in those days. Uh, But she was clearly very smart, very, again, intellectually curious. She kept up on world events. Um, She and Miyazaki would have all kinds of political discussions. And at one point, apparently, Miyazaki actually uh, ran out of the room crying after a fight with his mother, (laughs) an argument with his mother about politics. So they were both very passionate people, uh, but at the same time very intellectually and politically curious. And she also was a very strong woman. she held to her beliefs uh she was um uh, quite a uh, uh, apparently quite uh willing to to show her and express her opinions, not your typical you know stereotypical japanese woman and i think uh very clear that uh his his brothers think like Miyazaki did put a good good portrait of his mother into Madola, this head of the the pirates um, the space pirates or the air pirates uh he also has older women in both um uh, Howl's Moving Castle and in Ponyo, two much later movies. Uh, one in uh, Ponyo, you have three women who are, live in an old age home and they are uh, very sympathetically delineated. And he really seems to to care about these women. They're not just kind of stock old women characters. In Howl's Moving Castle, we have Sophie, who is a young girl who has a spell put on her to make her an older woman, an old woman, a 90-year-old woman. And it, Clear that really, as a ninety-year-old woman, she really shines. She kind of gets into her her powers as a as being a human being, and no longer just constricted by being a young girl with all the kind of restraints and expectations that young girlhood has. And I think that uh, you've mentioned um, Miyazaki's mother, is, and I have too, is a very important inspiration for this. But also in Studio Ghibli's Miyazaki Studio, uh, they you have a lot of very important women workers. Um, the, his main color, colorist, Yasuda Michio, was a very, very important influence on him. And she's also one of the people behind Miyazaki World, because the colors, as I said, the palette is just so extraordinary. And uh, in general, he seems to have respected his uh, female uh, workers very, very much, and uh, really appreciated all that they did for him. And they they were very, very much part of his kind of daily, daily routine uh, at the studio. So, uh, just generally, he has a very strong relationships with women, and his own wife is uh, was actually a, an, an animator, and they met at uh, the studio, uh, first studio where Miyazaki worked. So uh, he's used to having strong, interesting, smart, uh, capable women around him, and he likes to put them into his movies.
1: Yeah, yeah, interesting. Thank you. So sort of earlier you, you you mentioned this uh the supernatural aspects of, of sort of some of his movies and, and you know that that sort of got me thinking about fantasies, and in many of his movies you know we see various versions of fantasies right. I mean, you've got something that's more of, you know, sort of moments of, sort of hesitation in a sort of spirited way, or like in, in, in My Neighbor Totoro. Then you've got something that's, that's more, um, you know, European, like House Movie Castle or or, um, or Kiki. Um, and, and this is, I know, a question that you've, you've sort of you posed in, in your earlier works, right? But uh, w- what kind of fantasies are Miyazaki trying to portray in his films? Is there such a thing as a Japanese fantasy?
0: Wow, what a great question. Uh, there are... Uh... Quite a few uh, Japanese fantasies that are somewhat different from our conventional European fantasy um, or even American fantasy. I think this is really quite important. I'm actually uh, working on a book now comparing uh, Disney with uh, Studio Ghibli and uh, Walt Disney Studios and, and Studio Ghibli. And very clear that we have, uh, by 2022, we have, uh, we've been influenced a lot by disney's fantasies and but disney's fantasies are of course also very inspired by european fantasies uh particularly the brothers Grimm in germany and hans christian Andersen in um uh, in denmark and so i would say that in general just to explain european fantasies tend to they often show violence and certainly in the original works and uh, a lot of supernatural stuff and um very exciting adventures with witches and magic spells and transformation and things. Uh, And the protagonists often do have to go through very, very nightmarish scenarios. But in general, there is a tendency to have the happily ever after ending. Uh, uh, They they like to have resolution. Uh, They like to have a sense that um, uh, often it's a romantic ending with a a kind of heteronormative fantasy of a, a prince and a princess, Going off into the sunset together, or if not a, a princess, but, and then a young girl who marries a prince, and they all live happily ever after. So it's kind of tidied up neatly, you know, the bow tied around it, and, and everything's fine. Uh, that is quite different in Japanese fantasy literature. I wrote a whole book about Japanese fantasy, and um, uh, they're still extremely imaginative, beautiful stories, uh, but you have a, a very different overall worldview, um, going back to what I mentioned earlier about Mono aware, the sadness of things. I'm thinking of the, the, one of the most famous of Japanese fantasies, uh, which is um, Urashima Taro, the story of Urashima Taro. Uh, this is from heavens, I maybe the seventh, sixth, seventh centuries, and in which you have a, um, a young man who's a fisher fisherman, and he goes out to sea, and he rescues a turtle. Uh, and um, a few days later, the turtle comes back and says to him, um, you know, uh, thank you for not eating me or capturing me. I'd like to give you something in return. Why don't you come down to the palace of the sea, uh, under, the underground palace and the, the underwater palace of the sea with me? And it turns out the turtle is actually the, the daughter of a of the sea king. And uh, Urashima goes down with her to this beautiful underwater palace and has a great time and disports himself. And uh, really you know, has all these magical experiences. But at a certain point, he thinks, you know, I really need to go back. Um, Got to check on my old mother. You know, it's been you know, a couple of months now. I need to come back. Yeah. And so um, he, uh, the princess says, OK, if you wish. And, but um, I'm going to give you something. And it's a jeweled casket. And you should take that with you. But whatever you do, don't open it. So he says, OK, fine. And he goes back to the surface and he goes back to his old hometown and he's walking around and he realizes that things aren't quite the same. Uh, he doesn't seem to recognize anyone. And the houses look a bit different. And um, he uh, thinks, that's really odd. No one seems to, to, um, to recognize me. So he finally says, you know, uh, does anyone know where Rashi Matado's mother lives? And they say, oh, well, that, that, van, that died out years ago. And you think, oh my gosh, you know, I somehow all the, the time I spent down in the Palace of the Sea was actually, you know, years and years. And so in desperation, he opens up the jeweled casket. And out of the casket comes a vapor, a smoke, and it covers Urashima And in a few seconds, he ages 100 years, and he dies. And that's the end of the story. No, he does not live happily ever after with the princess down in the in the Undersea Palace. And this kind of sense of, of loss, of, of inevitable loss, of sadness, of melancholy, is very much a part of, of so many Japanese fairy tales. And um, uh, another famous one, I won't go into it in such detail, but you can see it if you want to see uh, Takahata's beautiful version of it, um, The Tale of Princess Kaguya, which uh, is, also, is about a beautiful princess indeed, uh, and who has many suitors but the ending is very, very different from what you expect. We are again kind of uh, left in a world that's somewhat, um, in this case, is not even totally resolved. We don't have the, nothing is sort of tied up. We have a, a sense of loss, but a sense of, of beauty having existed, of, of that a wonderful experience of having lived, of having, having enjoyed, of having kind of uh, engaged with life in a passionate, intense way. And uh and the end you have a situation of uh, one one Japanese um critic has said it's a situation of nothingness. You you don't have this uh this clear cut resolution. You don't have the prince and princess going off to the sunset to a castle. So it's a much more indeterminate, amorphous kind of, of world of, of fantasy, very different from uh the world of, of European or American fantasy.
1: Yeah, yeah. Fascinating, thank you. Uroshima Taro actually sort of leads very nicely sort of my next question, um, which is about nature, right? Um, we, we see so many depictions of nature in, 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 in sort of Miyazaki's films. And what I find really interesting is is just the wide spectrum of you know depictions of nature. You've got the you know bleak post-apocalyptic wasteland of of Nosika, but you've also got the you know the lush beautiful forest of of My Neighbor Totoro. How do we understand his relationship with sort, of, with sort of nature, and how does that manifest in his movies?
0: Wow, that's a, another great question. I think uh, I would almost say, just very um, sort of simplistically, it's kind of all-encompassing. I mean, he mm-hmm. really deals with all aspects of nature, and again, I think this is another sort of perhaps related to Japanese culture. Uh, maybe again going back to Miyazawa Kenji, this uh, uh, this writer in the early 20th century who wrote uh, Fantasies for Children, Uh, Kenji, Miyazawa Kenji, was living in northern Japan in a kind of very uh, cold and bleak environment, uh, but also very beautiful. And uh, his works are all about human beings as part of this larger natural world. And the larger natural world contains threats and strangeness and wildness. But it's, but this is what it's all about. The universe is a complicated place with so many aspects to it. And I think Miyazaki absolutely kind of in, engages in the same way. Uh, he will give us the beauty of the, the woods in Totoro, as you say, that, that forest, which is just so incredibly inviting. Uh, but at the same time, he is highly aware, and this goes back to the, our earlier discussion about sort of World War II and apocalypse, uh, that the natural world is full of of dangers and um, uh, and again just wildness that it's different uh, and we have to we have to respect that and to me one of the most important uh, of his films in that regard is um, Princess Mononoke and I, I write about that quite a lot in my book uh, I call that chapter the faces of others because Princess Mononoke has what initially seems like a very sort of classic. Uh, storyline that we're used to in the West of uh, particularly in the last 20 or 30 years of humans bad, nature good. You know and the humans are just you know messing up with nature and destroying it and, and nature is you know uh, it's somehow ought to be respected and taken care of. Um, but in, in the West we still tend to be very anthropomorphic about nature. We still, again, I'm thinking about Disney movies where you have something like Bambi. Where the characters, the animal characters, are clearly very, very human. They they talk. They're cute. They're um, you know they're cuddly, uh, and they um, uh, and they're they're very easy to uh, identify with. And in Miyazaki's work, in particular, he really doesn't give us that easy out. He makes us aware that nature is its own self, that it it contains multitudes, and it doesn't necessarily. Care that much about human beings, which may be just a blip in our in our planet's history. And in Prince um, sorry Mononoke, you have this war between the gods of the forest and the human beings. I mentioned Lydia Boshi, who's trying to um, uh, kind of sort uh, of subdue the forest so that she can get her iron ore out. And yet the um the animals and the, the gods of the forest. Are not necessarily cuddly and cute or at all anthropomorphized. Uh, they they do speak some of them, but they speak in a very different kind of way. Their preoccupations are very different. They they have a wildness to them that is beautifully beautifully done in the movie. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of the wolf family that um, that Miyazaki creates, and this is a family of wolves who adopted a young girl, the the Princess Mononoke. Okay, the title a young human girl, uh, but they are not. Cute and cuddly, uh, they are very strange, um, uh, rather scary. The mother Moro is, is speaks in a brilliantly done voice that that really sent, kind of sends shivers up and down your spine. Uh, she is herself; she she's not trying to sound like a human, and the things she talks about her are pretty savage. She she talks to the the young male human and says, "Look, I could just rip your um your throat out," and. It's, and that, that kind of potential danger remains there at the same time as she's a very powerful and fascinating character. Uh, even more fascinating to me, and then here we really get into otherness, are, we uh, um, going back to the supernatural too, we have, on the one hand, the tree spirits who are um, uh, rendered as sort of strange little blobby creatures who are actually kind of cute, but uh, they're not particularly, they're, again, they're not cuddly, they're sort of making fun of human beings. They're, they're, they belong to the trees. They're not really that interested in human beings per se, but they are a sign of a healthy forest. Uh, and they link to the, the great god of the forest, the Shishigami or the Detarabuchi, uh, who is this translucent um, uh, kind of fa- phantasmagorical figure, and I think to me, one of the greatest scenes that Miyazaki ever created in, in all his work, I, I call it the Sistine Chapel of Animation, is when uh, it's, it's a, we see the forest at night and the Kodama are kind of gathered together and they're looking up at the sky uh, and you see the mountains. And then we see this giant figure, the Tarabochi, uh, the, um, the forest god kind of manifesting itself with the moon and the, and the mountains behind it. And it's such a strange, strange-looking creature, and it does not look at all anthropomorphized. It doesn't have a face. Uh, it seems to be kind of shimmering, and you have a sense of enormous power, but a real otherness that this is not going to be a god that really is is at all involved with, with human beings. It just is in itself. And then you see the kodama, the little um, little tree spirits, kind of kind of um, looking up. At the god, and sort of just just seeming transfixed with joy in an otherworldly kind of moment, where you have a kind of circle of of nature and gods together, uh, and the, and you see a kind of wind passing through the kodama, and as the the, the great Deptarabochi god kind of sinks down into a lake, and uh, it's just a, a moment of of total otherworldliness, and you feel like you're you're this human who's kind of sneaking in and privileged to see this this totally uh, kind of a moment of otherness that we would never usually see because it really doesn't have anything to do with us. And the sense of nature being in itself and important, but also part of a much, much larger world that we as humans only have a small glimpse of. I think it's just beautifully rendered. And, and I have to say, again, the animation is just extraordinary. It could not be done, I think, in live action with that same sense of, of otherworldiness and strangeness.
1: Yeah, fascinating. Definitely. Thank you so much. Um, th- 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 thank you so much for sort of this this um, enlightening conversation. Uh, there's so much more that you sort of discuss um, in the book, but I'm afraid we've taken much of your time um, today. But before we say goodbye, uh, can you tell us what project um, you're currently working on? Um, I think you've mentioned a little bit earlier.
0: Oh, sure. Uh, I am currently just starting to uh, write a book on uh, comparing Disney Studios, of kind of, the world visions of Disney Studios with Ghibli Studios. And um, I I started originally as a course um, where I teaching at Tufts last semester. Uh, it's called um, uh, let's see, Studio Ghibli Meets Walt Disney Studios, mm-hmm. I think was the title of the course. And I really wanted to talk about how very different these studios are in the way they uh, the kind of characters they create, the, the narratives they create, and just the way the kind of world visions they give. And I uh, to their audiences. And I do see, obviously, Disney as a quintessentially American studio. Uh, so many times, I mean, I've now read, I don't know how many, <laughs> dozens, hundreds of books on Disney. It's a huge cottage industry. Uh, he, Disney and the studio are seen as kind of purveyors of the American dream. And so what is the American dream? What, what exactly are we talking about there? And then in comparison, I want to talk about Ghibli as um, purveyors of a rather different, Japanese, East Asian, non-American, non-Western viewpoint, and uh, you've, you know, just mentioned this talk about nature, and I think that's one of the key key uh, issues I'm going to be examining, how nature is uh, depicted in these films. One of the things I'm, I'm learning about is that I feel that in some ways uh, they are very different, yet there are some fascinating similarities, and both studios have influenced each other more than I had realized uh, at the beginning. And I'm also including Pixar Studios, too, because um, uh, they are now owned by Walt Disney. And Pixar uh, initially was one of the first major American studios to really uh, note how important Miyazaki's works were. So it's I'm going to do probably sort of a, a look at certain uh, specific films in certain ways. I mean, there are obvious comparisons. Uh, Disney's Little Mermaid with Ponyo is one. Uh, but there's some, some of them are less obvious. But again, how do you depict women? How do you depict children? Um, how do you pick old age? And, and overall, what kind of overall agenda or message are these studios uh, presenting to the world and, and how different are they? And I would even suggest I think Ghibli is, is very, very well suited to the world of the, um, the 21st century that we're living in, in a way that perhaps uh, Disney is perhaps a little bit less, um, less flexible. Uh, and less uh, kind of engaged with the, all the larger issues around them that Dibley is so much engaged with. So that's my, my current. Uh, I've just, just started working on it uh, in the last few months. So um, uh, maybe it may take a while, but I'm quite excited about it.
1: Yeah, great. Thank you. That sounds like such an interesting project. Um, please do look forward to Dr. Navier's future research, and um, I'll see you next time.
0: Okay, thank you very much. It was a pleasure.